Good morning, and welcome to the uh, worship service of Winkler Berchtaler Mennonite Church for March 21st. It's good to have you with us, wherever you are. So uh, bring your Bible, open it up, and let's worship together. Good morning, and we want to extend a warm welcome to each one of you who have joined us for the Sunday morning worship service here at the Winkler Berktaller Mennonite Church. We are praying that as you worship with us this morning, that your faith would be renewed, your strength restored, your soul uplifted, and that you experience God's grace and mercy this morning. God has supplied each of us as believers with wonderful promises in his word. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-8 through 8 tells us this. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective 
and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Close quote. With that in mind, I'm going to ask that you take your bulletins with me and turn to the announcements. This week at the Winkler Burktaller Mennonite Church, on Tuesday, 9.30 a.m., we have a women's prayer meeting. Then on Wednesday at 2 p.m., the Bible study led by Pastor Victor. And then at 7 p.m. in the evening, we have a baptism membership meeting, and that will be taking place in the meeting room. And I will be leading this. Then we can remember prayer for our missionaries, Don and Char Epp, as they are home here on furlough. We'd like to have an expression of sympathy for Jake and Eli's uh, Jake Elias, who passed away on Friday, March the 12th. A private graveside service was held, and he was the father of Jim and Evelyn Elias. Then, membership meeting. In anticipation of more restrictions being lifted, and we certainly are glad about that, we are tentatively planning a membership meeting for March the 29th. We ask you to put that on your calendars. Nominations for the committees will also be accepted at our membership meeting. However, before you nominate a person at the meeting, you need to check with that person you are nominating to see whether they are willing to let their name stand or not. And then the worship services. For the time being, a decision has been made to move to a rotational attendance for Sunday morning worship service. Since we no longer have the option of two Sundays, of two Sunday morning services, and little interest was expressed in the evening service, it is felt that this would um, serve our church well. And if you have not yet registered and would like to attend our worship service, please call or email the church office and you will be assigned to a group. Then going on, um, at the back in the foyer of the 220, are the 220 annual report books and they are printed copies that are available for you. Make sure that you pick one of those up. And then, of course, the church library will be open on Sunday morning and during office hours. At this time, I'm going to ask that you would bow your heads in prayer with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful day that you have given us. We pray that this morning that you would be glorified in our church and in our lives. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be sensitive to hear your voice and that you would lead and guide us as we are obedient to you. Help us to be obedient fully and not partially. We pray for your will to be done in our lives because your kingdom has come the moment that you come and you live within our hearts and you reign. And from this, you reign within the world also. And we pray for your will to be done as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord, that we would submit to your instructions. We pray that we would hear your voice, that we would be quick to obey. We ask that you would forgive us where we have failed you and where we were not even aware of it when we did sin. We ask your forgiveness when we intentionally sinned against you and our fellow brother this past week. We now confess our sin knowing that you have promised to forgive us, that you have said that as soon as we confess our sins, you will forgive us and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
We now pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us and enable us to forgive others the same way who have sinned against us without them even having to come and ask for forgiveness. Our prayer is that you would help us to be just like Jesus when he prayed on the, the cross for those who are crucifying them. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We pray, Father, that we would have that same strength to do as Jesus had done. This week, Heavenly Father, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from ourselves, from temptation and sin, so that our lives will bring honor and glorify you. Heavenly Father, we pray for all our worship services participants as they prepare for their parts for this day, as well as for every week, that your hand would be upon them. Today we pray for Anita Rudy and God's servants as they lead in music. We ask your hand to be upon them. We pray for Val Dick as she brings the children's story that you would speak to uh, through her. And Lord, that your word would be made known not only to the children, but also to us also. And Heavenly Father, we pray for Pastor Victor as he brings the message that you would speak through your word, that we would hear, we would listen, that we would be obedient, that you would be honored and glorified in all that is said and done. Then, Heavenly Father, we pray for wisdom for the Garden Valley School Board as they continue to give guidance and make changes in the school division. We pray at each juncture your will would be done that you would be honored, you would be lifted up. We also bring before you Don and Char Epp as, a, as they are home on furlough. Give them joy and strength and wisdom as they rest, also as they prepare to go out in the future, as they minister to various people and churches here. May you equip them, may you go before them, may your hand be upon them. We pray for our church and other churches as they worship in the midst of this COVID season. We pray that you would sustain them, that you would give them strength when they feel like giving up. Those who do not know you as Savior and Lord, that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Those who are poor have poor health, that you would touch them with your healing hand. And those who are discouraged, that you would uplift them with your presence. Now, Heavenly Father, we ask this, that you would go with us into the rest of the service. May you be lifted up and glorified and honored in our lives and in this church. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Today we're going to sing God on the Mountain.
The next song we're going to sing together is called The Wonderful Cross. song we're going to sing is Were You There?
Hi, everyone. Happy spring. Spring brings the promise of new life and growth. Easter is coming up, and that brings us hope, too. I was born and raised in southern Manitoba. I guess that makes me a prairie girl. Well, I also have a great love for the ocean. That's why when I go to the ocean, or really large lakes, I go beachcombing. That means I'm walking on the beach and I'm always searching for different seashells and even sand dollars. I've never found a starfish, though. Here is a basket filled with seashells and sand dollars I have found over the years. I have bought a starfish as a souvenir. So I've got different seashells and sand dollars. So these are sand dollars. And of course, behind my sand dollars are lots of seashells. These sand dollars that I have are called arrowheads. Sand dollars live on sandy or muddy flat areas of the ocean floor in shallow water. You can find sand dollars at low tide. You will notice that these sand dollars are very white and bleached by the sun. They're also very fragile and break easily. These sand dollars are not alive anymore. Today's story is about a keyhole sand dollar. And I don't have one of these in my basket here, so I have a picture of one instead. In today's story... Um, Carrie finds a sand dollar on the beach, and her cousin Jack tells her the greatest story of all. This keyhole sand dollar helps us learn of the story and hope of Easter. Let's read and find out more about this sand dollar and what it means for us at Easter. The Legend of the Sand Dollar, an inspirational story of hope for Easter. Why can't Mum and Dad take us to the beach? Carrie sniffled. It's only two days, whispered Margaret, and they'll come get us on Easter morning. Carrie tried not to cry. Every few years, her family went to Aunt Jane's house near the beach. I'll just think about playing with Cousin Jack, she told herself. I'll just think about the ocean. But her tears still fell as the bus took her farther and farther away from her mum and dad. Early the next morning, at Aunt Jane's, Carrie went out to look at the boats on the river. Carrie still missed her parents, but soon she heard the putt-putt-putt of an engine coming toward her from upstream. Cousin Jack! Carrie! Jack hollered. What do you think about my new boat? It's not very big, she called back. Then it's perfect for you. He took her hand as she climbed on board. The river opened to the wide bay. Hang on, Jack yelled. Suddenly, the ocean lay before them as broad as the sky. A small island appeared in the distance. 
Waves lapped against the shore as Jack beached the boat. What's this? Carrie called, holding up a round object. That's a sand dollar, Jack answered. A sand dollar? Carrie cried. This isn't money. Right, said Jack. It's a starfish that used to live in the ocean. How do they get here? Carrie asked. When the tide goes out, it leaves sand dollars behind, Jack said. Why are they called sand dollars? She asked. Real dollars used to be round, said Jack, and they were made of silver. But sand dollars have value too. Then I guess we're rich, Carrie teased. In a way, he answered, the sand dollar tells a story, the greatest story of all. Can you see the Easter lily on that side? It's like a trumpet saying Jesus is alive. Now look in the middle of the lily. There's the star from the east that led wise men to Christ. We remember Jesus' birth on this side too. See the Christmas flower? Both sides of the sand dollar tell the Easter story. See the four nail holes? and a fifth hole made by a spear, these remind us that Jesus died for us. Now hold out your hand, said Jack, and watch very carefully. He broke open one of the sand dollars, and five white shapes fluttered down. See the doves? This is the new life, the promise of Easter. As Jesus lives again, so can we. And these doves remind us to spread his promise and this hope to all people. Oh no, Carrie cried. We dropped them. Jack wasn't worried. The high tide will leave more, over and over. And I have a whole bucketful back home. As the tide rushed ashore again, Jack helped Carrie back into the boat, pushed it off the beach, and jumped inside. The boat crested the top of each wave, hung in the air, then swooped down like a ride on a roller coaster. But all the way back, Carrie could only think about the sand dollar and how valuable it really was. That night, the moon rose full across the water. You know what? asked Jack. Your parents aren't that far away, like the moon and the tide. But the moon is far away from the ocean, said Carrie. They're still connected, Jack explained. The moon's gravity is what pulls the tide high. From that far away? That's how the tide works. Like how God can remind us that he is close, too whispered Carrie, thinking of the sand dollar. The next morning, Carrie put a sand dollar into her sister's hands. Happy Easter, Margaret, she said. Thanks, Carrie. Carrie smiled and asked, Do you see the Easter lily? An Easter lily? Yeah, and inside there are little doves. I'll tell you the whole story. As they waited for their parents, 
Carrie shared the good news with her sister. Soon, Margaret smiled too. The legend of the sand dollar shares the hope of resurrection and new life, the promise of Easter. What were some of the symbols used in the sand dollar that remind us of the hope of Easter? Well, first, the sand, the Easter lily is on one side. It's like it's saying Jesus is alive. The second symbol is the star in the middle of the lily that helps us remember the birth of Jesus and the shepherds and wise men who followed that star. The Christmas flower called the poinsettia on the other side of the sand dollar <clears throat> is also a reminder of Jesus' birth at Christmas time. The four nail holes and a fifth hole made by a spear. These remind us that Jesus died a cruel death on the cross for us. The five doves symbolize the new life, the promise of Easter. Jesus lives again, and so can we. So this Easter, let's remember all that God has done for us. He sent his son, Jesus, as a baby who later died on the cross for our sins and forgave us our sins, and then he rose again. God did all of this for us out of his great love so that we could have eternal life and live with him forever if we believe in Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 11, verse 25 and 26 say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. What wonderful promises from God. And God always keeps his promise. I'd like to end with a poem also called The Legend of the Sand Dollar. The Legend of the Sand Dollar. There's a pretty little legend that I would like to tell of the birth and death of Jesus found in this lowly shell. If you examine closely, you'll see that you find here four nail holes and a fifth one made by a Roman spear. On one side, the Easter lily, its center is the star that appeared unto the shepherds and led them from afar. The Christmas poinsettia etched on the other side reminds us of his birthday, our happy Christmas tide. And now break the center open, and here you will release the five white doves awaiting to spread goodwill and peace. This simple little symbol Christ left for you and me to help us spread this gospel through all eternity. The scripture reading is taken from the selected verses found in Matthew chapter 21. And these verses highlight the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Matthew chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. 
Then verse 23, moving on. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Moving on to verses 28 through 31. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said to some, to the, uh, said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Moving on to verses 30 to 33, or 33 to 40. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent the servants to the tenants to collect the fruit. The tenants seized the servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. And last of all, he sent his son to them. They respect, they will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what, what will he do to these tenants? Then we move on to verse 45. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus Jesus' parable, they knew he was talking about them. Well, thank you, Pastor Dean, for reading those uh, bits of Matthew 21. I hope it gives us a sense of the tension that's building uh, uh, between Jesus and the authorities in the last week of his earthly life. With Good Friday approaching and uh, the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus... I thought it would be good for us to take a look at some of the things that took place in that last week before his crucifixion. We often look at the Passion Week from the point of view of, look what they did to Jesus. And, and we look on his abusers with some disgust and disdain. And we think, how could they? It's a comfortable place from which to view those events, isn't it? It's a little more work to include ourselves in that scene. Instead of thinking what they did to Jesus, could we see it as what we did to Jesus? Jesus was crucified not only for the sin of those who condemned him and and, uh, swung the hammer to nail him to the tree. He died because we too have sinned. To forgive us, he had to absorb in his body the consequences of our sin. We are no less guilty than those who crucified him. Isn't that a little humbling? Or we might look at the cross and say, look what Jesus had to endure for me. 
And we have somehow come to think that we are the center of God's universe, that we are God's highest priority, and that all his attention is focused on us. Listen to the words of God through the prophet Ezekiel. Therefore say to the house of Israel, This is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name that you have profaned among them. So, did we read that right? It is not for our sake that God acts. According to this, God is concerned about his name and that his people understand that he is holy and that he is to be feared. Isn't that a little humbling? As we think about Jesus' death, let's also remember that Jesus was not a victim. Jesus does not need or solicit our pity. Jesus knew why he came to earth. He came for judgment, John 9.39. He came to testify to the truth, John 18.37. And he came to save his people from their sins, Matthew 1.21. He came to perform the one act of forgiveness for all people, for all time, in his body, through his death, on the cross. This was in the mind of God when he made man in his image and gave man a will to choose evil or good, death or life. As we think about Jesus' death, let's remember that Jesus was active in bringing about his crucifixion. The last week of his earthly life was spent in Jerusalem. We call it the Passion Week. In it, there were numerous confrontations between Jesus and those who opposed him. And this morning's scripture reading was selected to highlight those rising tensions. Most of those encounters were his opponents coming to test him, to trick him, and to put him on trial. But on two occasions in particular, it was Jesus who did the confronting. The first such encounter was a confrontation of the practices of the Jews at the temple. Immediately after his triumphal entry, where Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, he went into the temple and drove out all those who sold and bought in the temple. And quoting Isaiah 56, 7, Jesus said to them, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The people had lost focus on what should have taken place at the temple. I'm sure the authorities just wanted to make it convenient for people to purchase their offerings to take to the priests. But the purpose of the temple got overlooked. Business entered the temple. And you know how quickly business destroys an atmosphere of prayer. Needless to say, this encounter got under the skin of the chief priests 
and the elders, the teachers of the law. The next day, Jesus went to the temple, and the chief priests and the elders came and questioned his authority. Jesus followed up with a few parables in which the chief priests and the Pharisees perceived that Jesus was talking about them. Then the Pharisees plotted how they might trap Jesus in his words, and they asked him about paying taxes to Caesar. I think many of us remember how that went. Not too well for them. They were stunned and left speechless. So then the Sadducees decided to try and trip him up with a question about the resurrection. But he silenced them too. Then, not to give up too easily, the Pharisees thought they'd give it another go and came at him with a question about the greatest commandment. Jesus gave them what looks like a satisfactory answer, but then, knowing what they were trying to do, Jesus turned the tables on them and asked them a question that they could not answer. At the end of that conversation, the Bible says that no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now that the religious elite were done talking, Jesus launched his second confrontation. He addressed the moral depravity of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law exposing their hypocrisy, their deception, their blindness, and the judgment that was waiting for them. Jesus began by warning the crowd at the temple about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in their hearing. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23, and let's read together. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Have you ever encountered people whose walk doesn't line up with their talk? Do you find it difficult to want to follow such people? If we're honest with ourselves, we know that there have been times in our own lives when our walk and our talk didn't line up. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law spoke the words of Moses. They gave sound instruction, but they did not hold themselves to that teaching. Somehow they saw themselves above the law, and Jesus explains what that looks like. Verse 4, They tie up heavy loads, and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. With careful instruction, they see to it to express the full meaning of the law and all that it requires of those who hear it. Yet they do not carry it out themselves, but ruthlessly they weigh down their hearers. The idea of bear one another's burdens, I don't think, was in their thinking. Verse 5, everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. They are show-offs, I guess we could say. 
and they like to show off their godliness, parading their good deeds for all to see. They hold themselves up as exemplary men of God and pat themselves on the back. They wave their own flag. They toot their own horn, hoping that everyone will notice. They just love it when others can see all the good that they do. Verse 6. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you only have one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. So these Pharisees and teachers of the law set themselves apart from everyone else. They esteem themselves of being of great importance, of having position and power, of having knowledge and wisdom, of being skilled, worthy of much honor, great respect, and a large following. So, is it the titles, rabbi, father, teacher, that are the problem? Isn't it the attitude of setting oneself above one's peers that is repulsive? Then Jesus turned the idea of greatness on its head. In verse 11, he says, The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus seems to have made his point. But he has only set the stage for his listening audience. These encounters are taking place at the temple as people freely come and go. And until this moment, Jesus has been warning his followers not to do as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But now, Jesus turns directly toward them. Previously, he spoke to them in parables, but now he is speaking plainly, and they are the ones on the hot seat. Verse 13, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. What's the problem here? These men, whose sole duty it is to help people understand the law so that they can keep it, are making the law hard to keep. And they corrupt their teaching by not doing what they preach. So those who look at them and follow them and do what they do become corrupt just like their teachers They're responsible to teach the kingdom of heaven, and yet they keep people out of it. Verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! 
You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Pretty strong words. Sounds like he's describing the dark downtown, the dark downtown streets of a large city. And if you're familiar with how corruption works, you'll know that one thing crooked people do is they get to other people to do their dirty work for them. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law taught their new converts to do the evil that they were doing and then sent them out to do it. As though that was the right thing to do. They corrupted them and disqualified them for the kingdom of heaven. They had the appearance of compassion in searching for new converts, yet they were ruthless and uncaring. Verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You say also, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. I'm sure there is more to that, those few verses, than I'm going to unpack right here. But what one problem I see is not that it is a problem of swearing of oaths. I don't think it's that. But I think what the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are accused of is saying that one oath means nothing, and yet another makes you bound. Who would make such an argument? Do you remember the schoolyard promises of your childhood? And hearing someone make the excuse, I didn't say I promise. I think the accusation here is that they have developed ways to look trustworthy by making an oath, yet they devise ways to escape their obligations. They're weasels. They have the appearance of trustworthiness, yet use deception to escape obligation. Verse 23. Woe to you, Pharisees and teachers of the law, You hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. It seems that they were pretty picky about the law and all the details of the law. So picky, in fact, that they forgot the big picture. The law reveals that man is sinful and that God is holy. They pointed out the sin of others while they tried to preserve their appearance 
They washed the camel and polished their sandals for the Sabbath so that they would look good. Then he would hurry past the needy to get to their favorite place at the temple. Instead of dropping a few coins for the beggar, they would look the other way, and they wouldn't risk helping the lame for fear of becoming unclean. Of course, I'm surmising. But they, they strive for the appearance of faithfulness, of being faithful leaders, and yet they are unjust, they are unmerciful, and they are faithless. Verse 25, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. If one knows the importance of generosity, yet desires to keep things for himself, his conscience will force him to appear generous, even though he wants to give nothing. He hates to give, but does enough to give the impression of generosity so that he can maintain his favored social position. The Pharisees had the appearance of generosity, and yet they were filled with greed. Verse 27, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. These lovers of attention and status and power must maintain an impression of righteousness. And what does righteousness mean? It means doing right. If they do not look to others as though they are doing right, they will lose their admiration. The admiration they so crave. It is not the approval of God that they seek, but the approval of men. The appearance of righteousness, yet filled with wickedness. Verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your sin Sorry, the measure of the sin of your forefathers. Do you remember the prayer that the prophet Daniel prayed when he perceived the end of the desolations of Jerusalem as foretold by Jeremiah? What did Daniel do? Did he try to distance himself from his forefathers? Did he say that he was not guilty of the sins of his forefathers? No. In fact, 
He sought the Lord God in prayer, with fasting and pleas for mercy, in sackcloth and in ashes. And he confessed to the Lord and said this, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps keeps his covenant of love with all who obey him and obey his commandments. Sorry, with all who love him and obey his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Daniel did not try to separate himself from his forefathers or from their behavior. But he humbled himself, and he acknowledged his own guilt along with the guilt of his people. The Pharisees, in their pride, could not associate with those who sin. Yet they could not see their own sin in the disdain that they had for their fellow Jews. And not only that, here they were, appearing to be God-fearing men, yet already plotting to kill the prophet that stood before them, the Son of God. They had the appearance of piety, yet they were murderers. Verse 33. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. These words were spoken to the hypocritical Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These were unbelieving men, men who should have believed. And these were teachers of the people who corrupted sound teaching by disobeying it. But even though they were unbelievers, and we are believers, I think there's something that we can learn from this encounter. A pastor friend of mine once said, if you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the dog who yelps is the dog who got hit. In other words, if you feel any discomfort from this morning's message, Perhaps you've been hit with the Word of God. And I know that there are things in here that hit me. What is it in the behavior of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that so displeased Jesus? Will we be like them and say, I would never do that? And can we honestly say that we have not done some of these things? They were teachers of the kingdom of heaven, and yet they kept people out. 
They had the appearance of compassion, yet they were ruthless and uncaring. They had the appearance of trustworthiness, yet they were deceptive. They had the appearance of faithfulness, yet they were unjust, unmerciful, and faithless. They had the appearance of generosity, yet they were filled with greed. They had the appearance of righteousness, yet they were filled with wickedness. And they had the appearance of piety, godliness, and yet they were murderers. Did Jesus ever give the answer to their problems? Did Jesus just hurl judgments on them and walk away? Actually, Jesus gave them the, the solution while he was still speaking to the crowd. And we find that in verse 11. The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the solution. Humility. The requirement was never perfect adherence to the law as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law liked to think. Who can accomplish flawless execution of the commands of God? The answer is to live in humility. Only in humility is it possible to acknowledge that one cannot live in perfect adherence to the law. Only in humility is it possible to do all the things that Jesus said they were not doing. There should be no doubt in our minds that any effort on our part is remotely satisfactory to God in improving our lot before him. Our righteousness, if you recall Isaiah, is filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. What is required of us is, as the prophet Micah says, to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 8. If we choose to walk in humility, it will change how we live with others. Listen to how pride and humility work differently. Pride thinks that it can achieve adherence to the law. And therefore, pride expects near-perfect adherence from others. Pride condemns those who fall short. And pride offers no help and no encouragement. Some of us have been treated that way. And when we fall short and can't measure up, we get bitter or distant, and we have difficult relationships. And more often than not, we end up doing the same thing to others. That's what pride does. Humility, on the other hand, confesses that it cannot achieve perfect adherence to the law. Therefore, it understands when others fail to achieve it. Humility is compassionate toward those who fail. And humility encourages the lowly and strengthens the weak. Some of us have experienced that. 
and found ourselves encouraged, that we have good, strong relationships, and we are confident in the one who covers our sin. We have the peace of Christ and the joy of the Lord, and we enjoy living out our faith. That's what humility does. What if we would be more deliberate about being a humble people? I'm not saying that there is no humility among us, but we all need reminders because we all drift. And when we drift, it's never toward God, it's always away from Him. Let's be genuine people and own up to our own shortcomings. Let's not try to make ourselves appear better than we are. Let's be people who demonstrate compassion toward others and come alongside those who fail, those who are in the dumps, those who fall short just like we do. Let's be people who are willing to associate with the lowly and give them a hand or a word of encouragement. Let us bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you know how terribly proud we tend to be. And I pray, Father, that as we think on these words, as we think on these passages from Matthew, that you would help us to humble ourselves, to make us willing to confess our wretchedness so that we can, so that we might find favor in your sight, so that we might be of use to our neighbor, that we might be compassionate people, and that we would be acceptable in your sight. Help us to seek your favor and not the favor of men. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the last song we're going to sing is called Forever. Thank you for joining us and singing the song with us.
now I'd like to leave you with this benediction from Jude and then the blessing from Numbers. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And now the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.